I'm facing now for these felony drug charges at the time. My life is about to be over as I knew it. And I'm like, how did this kid get there? My identity as a man was just completely shattered. I thought you're successful as a kid, as a young boy, if you're good at sports, if, if the pretty girls are interested in you, and if you have like the, if you're part of the cool crowd. Those 90 days that I spent in jail transformed my life completely. It's a tough, but once you're able to do that, I think once in your life, it builds that adversity muscle so much. Mm-hmm. And then you could handle anything. The big silence. Hello, what's up? It's Karina here, your host and your friend. I'm so excited to spend another week with you here at the Big Silence Podcast. How is your 2024 going? Mine is going fantastic. Good start to good slow start, I would say. I believe for a lot of us, it was like this extended holiday. Back at it, back at working out. I just got done with my workout. Uh, This week, we started the Reset and Renew program in the Tone It Up app. So make sure to head over to toneitup.com if you haven't already joined us in this program. Uh, You're going to love it. And all of your favorite trainers are back. I'm just letting you know if you are feeling a lack of motivation, just take one foot in front of the other. Get out of that bed, make that bed, do some squats, do your meditation, move your body and your morning starting like that will make the rest of your day fall right into perfect place. Let's jump into this week's guest. It's Doug Bobst. He is an award-winning personal trainer, author of three books, and host of the Adversity Advantage podcast. His mission in life is to inspire others to overcome their adversity and become the best version. His story is really cool because to go from being in prison and his freaking cellmate was the one who motivated and transformed him to slay his personal demons and kick his addiction and literally reinvent himself. So he got into fitness while in jail. It's an incredible story. And Doug was in person in the Big Silence studio here in Austin. He is just such a genuine person. And I love the, these conversations of reinventing ourselves because I think a lot of times, you know, when you ha- hear that phrase, oh, you've changed, you've changed. But most of the times as we get older and wiser, we do change and we change for the positive. And I think that we shouldn't be afraid of the change. If there's something that you want to do, a goal you want to reach, but you're like, no, this is the narrative the story that I tell myself of who I am so you don't take that risk to move forward or maybe try something different that would better your life, that's holding yourself back. I hope that this is a story that can encourage you that change and reinvention and reinvigorating yourself is awesome. And you may have seen him even on today's show, Men's Health, Forbes, Rituals podcast, I am excited to introduce you to Doug Bobst. Welcome to the Big Silence podcast, Doug Bobst. Karina, thanks for having me. Of course, you're here in Austin. Yet another wonderful fitness uh, enthusiast thinking about moving here. Yeah, Yeah, I love it here. I mean, you can't beat the community aspect, the food, just what the city has to offer. I mean, there's just nothing like it um, in the U.S., at least from what I've seen. Yeah, I lived in LA for 20 years, which is crazy. Uh, I moved here in 2019. Bobby and I moved here 
Didn't know a single person. Really? Nobody. I just always loved Austin for like over a decade. And I said, you know, if I ever leave California, I want to move to Austin. And he never was here until 2019. That summer, he stepped off the plane. Even the airport has a vibe. Right. And so he's like, okay, let's do it. And then here we are. And then now we have so many friends here. And the community here is, everyone is so welcoming. And I don't know, like in Baltimore, how does it feel there? Do you have community? I mean, I have friends there, but I don't, there's not the community vibe like there is here in Austin where, you know, there's a lot of people here that are forward thinking into personal development, into wellness, into growth, and the people are welcoming as far, it just feels like the South, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there's not, there's not this vibe in Baltimore. Yeah. Well, we welcome you here, Doug, and you are the person who turns adversity into triumph. And I've listened to your story. I've heard your story. And I love how vulnerable and genuine you are and very open about it. And I'd like to start with you when you were 20 years old and you get convicted as a felon. Yeah, it's crazy times, right? And I think, you know, we have these moments in our lives sometimes where you experience life, you know, one of your greatest setbacks in your life. And you think that's going to ruin you, but it in fact makes you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what that, that moment did for me. Cinco de Mayo of 2008, I was riding around with a few of my friends to make a drug deal. Um, I had a half a pound of pot in my trunk, a couple thousand dollars of cash in the glove box. And I had a busted headlight that I had been mm-hmm. meaning to fix for months. And, you know, people were like, dude, you're riding around selling drugs, doing drugs. You better get this headlight fixed because you're going to get pulled over. But because I was in the thick of addiction, I was heavily addicted to, to opiates and mm-hmm. other drugs and selling drugs. If it didn't involve, you know, me getting high or, you know, selling drugs to somebody, et cetera, it, it did not matter. interested. Not interested, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm riding around with a few of my friends that night, like I just described. I see a cop running radar because it's one of the biggest drinking nights of the year. Mm-hmm. I flash my high beams at the police officer thinking that it would be a, a good idea to hide the fact that I have a busted headlight by flashing my high beams. But really, it gave him an excuse to pull me over. Pulls me over. I, I struggle to get my license and registration to give to him. One thing leads to the next. I'm out of the car. I'm in handcuffs. Searches it. Finds everything. I'm in the back of a cop car. And I think that my life is over at that point. And when I'm in the back of this cop car, I was thinking to myself, how did I get to this place, right? Where now, you know, I'm 20 years old. Like you mentioned, I I was a convicted felon and I'll get into like, you know, how I got convicted and all that stuff in court in a second. But I'm facing now for these felony drug charges at the time. My life is about to be over as I knew it. And I'm like, how did this kid get there? And a lot of it came from my inability to deal with life and stress. Mm-hmm. And I, I used selling drugs, doing drugs, and all these other poor habits as a way to mask all my emotions and all of my pain. And that really was the massive catalyst for me for getting arrested that night. And so taken to jail, I get bailed out the next day by my dad. And then a few months later in September, I go to court. And I'm 20 years old. The judge, in my opinion, threw the book at me at that time because mm-hmm. he's like, um, I'm convicting you of the felony and I'm sentencing you to five years in jail, but I'm going to suspend everything but 90 days. Meaning if I 
uh, I only had to do, to do 90 days, but if I messed up, if I violated probation, if I caught another charge, if I got caught doing drugs or anything like that, I could potentially have to go back and serve the full five years. So it gives me five years, everything suspended with 90 days, five years probation, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But he looks at me, he's like, Doug, you're young, you're 20 years old. This felony conviction is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. He's like, I'm going to give you a deal. I'm like, deal? I'm going to jail. Like, what's, what's the deal? Mm-hmm. He's like, if you complete everything without messing up, no misprobation appointments, you don't fail a drug test, you do everything I ask. At the end of the five years of your probation, you can come back before me and I will take the felony conviction off of your record. And, wow. and at the time, like, I didn't think I was going to see my 25th birthday. That seemed so far-fetched to me. I didn't think I was going to, to make it that long. And, you know, thankfully, it ended up really sparking, you know, a big transformation for me because I ended up reporting to jail a few weeks later. It was ironically like a week after my 21st birthday. And those 90 days that I spent in jail transformed my life completely. And before we go there, what led you up to the point that you got to the point of selling drugs and being an addict? Like your, was it your childhood, something that happened when you were younger? What were you running from? Emotional pain. And this idea that I thought something was wrong with me, that I was a failure and that I was a loser. Who told you that? I believed it for myself. And I just think my circumstances, in my opinion, validated that because I grew up and my parents, when I was growing up, my parents got divorced when they were five. And it was at a time where divorce wasn't as common as it is Mm -hmm. today. And so I looked around, I was like, why is everybody else's parents together and mine aren't? And then I also was bullied a lot in school. I was picked on. I was told that I looked like I had Down syndrome people would say some really mean things to me. And it just made me feel like something was wrong with me. Did you think your parents got divorced because of you? Or No, it was more like I just didn't understand why they weren't talking to each other, why yeah. they were fighting so much. And then I just think that I sought out community from all the wrong places because mm-hmm. I was trying to fill that void that I didn't have at home. Mm-hmm. And then other things that really bothered me were I loved sports, but I just wasn't very good. So I would get cut from all the teams or I'd be picked last or I'd be the guy on the practice squad. And so this snowball of what's wrong with me kept building and building and then girls didn't like me. So my identity as a man was just completely shattered because I thought that you're successful as a kid, as a young boy, if you're good at sports if the pretty girls are interested in you and if you're part of the cool crowd. I didn't have any of that. Yeah. I can feel you on all of that. I was really shy. I definitely got kicked into some lockers and made fun of for being tall and awkward. And I I turned to, I mean, I've probably written all of this in my memoir, but probably I was arrested arrested three times as a teenager. And um, yeah, it's, you know, parents are fighting, mom is schizophrenic. It's what do you turn to? The misfits and the the people that accept you. And probably back then, the kids that were probably going through the same stuff as you at home, and but we weren't talking about it with each other. Yeah. And I also think that I was trying to do whatever I could to survive mm-hmm. and to fit in. Yeah. And I didn't realize that the things that I was doing to try to fit in were became, would become so addictive for me. Yeah. Like... The thing that first numbed the pain for me was, I mean, there was food at first initially, but the thing that really did was, was weed. Mm-hmm. And when I was 14 and I started, I first started to smoke pot, I felt this massive weight come off my back where I could finally be at peace with who I was. I didn't have to worry about 
my home life. I didn't have to worry about the girls rejecting me or what kids were going to say to me. I could feel at peace. And that feeling became addictive. That cycle became addictive for me to do whatever I needed to do to escape the pain. Do you have any addictive personalities in your family? Is it, is it genetics or anything? I mean, there's been trauma, I think, yeah. throughout my family, you know, lineage or whatever. But as far as addiction, I can't say that, like, it's not like my mom or my, or my dad had, like, addictive personalities. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was definitely some, some mental health, I think, that, you know, runs in my family. But not, like, you know, I don't think it was hereditary. I think it was more that just the trauma that was caused. I mean, the divorce was part of it. But I think the biggest thing was the thing at school. Because I would come home and I would cry. Mm when I would get home from school and I would just wish that people would stop picking on me. I wish girls would like me. And, you know, I was having a conversation about this this morning with somebody because it's tough. It's like, you want to, like now you and I can say, oh, just don't worry about what other people think. It's about them, not about you. But when you're like 11 years old, you don't want to hear that, right? Yeah. You want your environment <laughs> in some ways can validate those feelings because if I'm telling myself I'm a loser and Girls aren't interested in me no matter how hard I try. I'm not making the sports teams. I'm being picked on. Then it's like easy to, to say, well, maybe I am. Because if I, if I wasn't, then why wouldn't somebody be interested in me? Yeah. I mean, in, that's as a child. And even in today's age, we get picked on and cyberbullying. Even adults are doing it to adults. But yeah. just shame on anyone doing that. That is just crazy. And it's still, it does, I don't know about you, for me. I mean, it... It affects you a little, but then you're like, Karina, come on, <laughs> you know. Uh, but what would you say to anyone listening who's being picked on, whatever age? It's tough. You yeah. know, I, I was, again, talking about this with a friend this morning over coffee, and it's like the Instagram meme answer is, you know, how people treat you is about them, not about you. Right. But if you're a teenager, it's really hard to understand that, you know. And you, your your main thing is like, well, you just want to be able to be liked in school and be able to survive and have fun. I, I think the the main thread is just you have to focus on yourself mm-hmm. and focus on being strong and doing what you can to improve your your mental health and becoming a better version of yourself. What no matter what the age is, I mean, you fitness at whatever age, you know, however that looks like for you, whether it's you know, when you, if you're a teenager playing sports or doing what you can to stay active in, in a way that works for you and finding something that excites you, finding a hobby, finding things that you're drawn to and sticking to them, making sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that bring the best out in you. Yeah. Making sure you surround yourself pe- with people who have common futures and not common past. And don't hang out with people just because you think it's the cool crowd or just because it's the way to go. Hang out with people that you actually are aligned with because the fastest way to hate yourself is to hang out with people that don't align with you because you shift into this version of yourself that is so far removed from who you truly are at your core that you lose your identity, you lose your values, you lose your sense of self-worth because you're filling that void with the values and self-worth and ideas of other people. How would someone recognize that that's what they're doing? I think it's just, you have to, you know, and in in the recovery community, they talk about taking inventory, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important as you get older specifically to analyze who you spend time with mm-hmm. and really start to ask yourself, like if you are depressed and feeling like off and stressed all the time, like look at your inner circle, who you're spending mm-hmm. time with. Are, you, are, you, are the people around you constantly complaining? Are they constantly you know, gossiping and talking down about others? Are they making fun of you? And mm-hmm. if the answer is yes, 
then it might be time to you know, reevaluate. And one of the things that I have done over the years, and this kind of this might seem silly to some, but it works, is to make a list of the, the top five people that you spend the most time with, mm-hmm. and get clear on what they do for your life, and not in a transactional way, but how do you feel when you're around these people? What are their goals? What are their values? What are their dreams? How does it align with you and yourself? Right? How do they treat other people? What are their like morals and beliefs and everything? Because I think what you'll understand is, especially if you get to know yourself enough, you'll be like, oh, okay, like this might make sense because energy is a thing. Yeah. And I think our <laughs> environment creates a false sense of normalcy. And I talk about this a lot in that if you spend time with people and all they're doing is complaining all the time, mm-hmm. you'll start complaining. I know. I know. I, you know? And that's a good point. And you can take inventory at any time in your life. Sure. And I've taken inventory this year. And I realized that a friend of many, many years was complaining, saying negative things all the time. And I started using those words and Bobby started using those words that we've never used. Like, where's this coming from? And it was an energy. I was like, and just many, many other things that I realized didn't align with who I was. And this is a friend of 20 years. And I finally, I made that choice of, this is not in alignment with me anymore. And I thought, and I missed it for many, many years. I missed it and made that huge choice. And then after that happened, it was really hard. Like a few of my friends and my husband were like, you feel so much lighter. Yeah. You know, so much more positive because you don't want to be around people that feed that negativity, even though you don't agree with their views or this or that, but it's that energy that you're talking about. It affects you. Yeah. And there's a fine line, right? Because when I first got in the personal development space, I was like, I only want to spend time with people that have everything in common with me. Yeah. You know, and then I've learned that some of my, some of the biggest things that I've grown from or that I've, you know, grown from, yeah, or grown from, have been some conversations with people I don't agree with or people I've had on the podcast that share different beliefs about about the world or whatever. But I do also think that you have to get to a place where you're committing to surrounding yourself again, like with people who have common futures, not common past, because so many people will use the fact they've known somebody for 20 years or spent time with them in high school or whatever as an excuse to continue to spend time with that person, even though that person is like bringing you down in your life. And I think we all have a choice in life to grow. And some people just won't grow with you. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to be growing in the same direction, but I think everybody's got to be on some path forward, Mm -hmm. you know, in order to you know, really make the most of their life. Yeah, that's an important note to make of sometimes you just, even if it's 20 years, you're not growing and you don't have to have all the same beliefs, but we all need to keep growing in some way. Otherwise, we just keep going and we just can't connect anymore. It's not a friendship. There's nothing that holds us together as friends. Okay, I want to go back to this. I want to call him the angel judge. Yeah. Because he gave you the option that you didn't have to do five years if you did everything in your probation. And not everybody gets that. Yeah, I got really lucky as I look back. Yeah. Because again, it's like, as I said at the beginning, sometimes in these moments in life, you view it as this massive setback. Yeah. And you're like, I can't believe this is happening to me, but you don't realize the gift that will come from that until you're out on the other side of it. So, you know, I got this incredible deal and I ended up reporting to jail, like I said, a week after my 21st birthday. It was October 21st, 2008, so eight days after my 21st birthday. And when I got when I got to jail, the first thing I had to do 
was detox cold turkey from opiates because I was heavily addicted to Oxycontin. So in jail, how is that? Do they just leave you in your cell or do they take you to a detox area? No, there's no detox center there for that because you can't die from opiate withdrawal. So, you know, if they really aren't obligated to necessarily like help you through that because it's just more you have to get through the battle of the symptoms. They gave me some stuff for like nausea because one of the symptoms is like, you know, you're vomiting and uncontrollable bowel movements and stuff. But it was like having the worst case of the flu for like three weeks straight. Wow. But the the symptom that was ironically the hardest for me to battle became the most transformative in that I felt like I was trying to crawl out of my own skin, leave my own body. I don't know if anybody's listening to this has ever struggled with this, but as I look back now, it was like the old me leaving so that the new me could become whole, you know? And my soon-to-be cellmate was sitting there at one of the tables playing Scrabble throughout, you know, during my detox. And he was, he looked like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. <laughs> and he was like, you're going to start working out with me when you get through your detox. I was mm. like, there's no way. Like, I could, have you you've seen me? I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like 40% body fat. Yeah. And he was just like, all right, man, whatever. And then not too long after that, I saw him work out. And he was doing thousands of push-ups, hundreds of pull-ups, running all over the, the common area of the jail. And we had a conversation one night in the cell that changed my life forever. And I was like, um, he was asking, like any good coach was, would do. He was asking me like why I was in jail, what happened to me. And I was blaming my parents for the divorce. I was blaming the girls. I was blaming everybody else. And he looked at me and I'll just keep it PG. He was like, quit being a victim. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're blaming everybody else for your problems, but yourself. Mm-hmm. He's like, there's plenty of people that went through what you did and they aren't in jail. Right, Doug? And I'm like, yep. He's like, you have two choices. Be a man. Be a victim. Look, be a man. Look yourself in the mirror and say, it's up to you to change. No one's coming to save you. No one's coming to rescue you. Go be, or you can go be a victim and cry in the corner and say, what was me? He's like, most people will do that. And I felt empowered in that moment that I was like, man, like, I guess he's right. You know? Okay. Two things here. Number one, now you have angel judge and then angel <laughs> cellmate. Yeah. <laughs> and then what was he in for? He had been in, he was in there for a bunch of different felonies. He was yeah. um, an addict as well. Mm-hmm. And I think would just break into people's homes, take stuff and then sell it for money. And he, it's just crazy how the world works. He was, I think, serving up in Pennsylvania for for years. And mm-hmm. then because of the crime he committed up in Pennsylvania, it violated parole that he was on in Maryland. So after he was done his sentence in Pennsylvania, he had to come back to the county jail that I was in to wait to go to court for the parole violation. So it was just crazy timing of all of this, that we were in the same place together. Yeah. And he just saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. And I, I, I get emotional because he passed away last year. And oh. it's like, mm. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for him. Mm. And his just encouragement and just tough love, I guess, in, the, in that situation was so life-changing for me because I, my head was just so far down in the mud yeah. And I couldn't see light. Like, I thought I was going to die before I was 25. Like, I really did. Yeah. And I contemplated, like, and there was nights where I would snort, like, oxy and coke in the same line. I'd be like, I wonder if I snorted this, if anybody would miss me if I died. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would think about, like, the funeral and stuff. And it's a really dark way to live. It is very dark. And it's really hard to come out of that. But it seems like you going to jail is what saved you and then your cellmate. And so... He got you working out. He got me moving. I mean, yeah. and, and have I was, you ever worked out before? Not, not really formally. I mean, yeah. I was always a fat, I was a fat kid, you know, yeah. overweight, and um, 
just wasn't very good at anything physical. Yeah. I was always the kid who, you know, like I said, got cut from sports. I was running from fights. I was, yeah. you know, not a physical guy. And I got down to do a push-up. Couldn't do a push-up, not even from my knees. Could barely walk up and down the steps because I was also smoking like a pack or pack and half of cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. And with his motivation and encouragement, training me in there every single day, I was able to do a set of 10 push-ups and run a mile by the time my jail sentence was over. And it just completely changed me because I finally was able to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I was finally able to face some of the demons. I was finally able to become disciplined. I learned how to reattach behavior to emotion where I could manage my mental health and stress in a way that was productive. Uh, I finally just learned that I had the power to change. And And that got the ball rolling for me to reinvent myself. What do you think... Like in, I'm trying because I had a moment like that after a three day bender in a park and waking up and saying, and I was probably 20 and so around the same age as you. And I was like, there's, it just clicks and it's like, there's something better in life for you. And I don't know what it is, but this is not meant to be you. Right. And so, how do you listen to that inner voice and then believe it? It's the million dollar question, right? Yeah. It's tough because when the odds are stacked against you, and like I said towards the beginning, when your circumstances say the opposite, it's like, how do you move through? Mm. And for me, once I had this glimmer of light that I found through working out, I knew that my only choice was to tap into that and just to go all in on the the 5% of me that believed that I was actually going to succeed because the 95% thought I was going to fail based on my track record, based on a lot of limiting beliefs I still had and everything else. And I had to take it day by day. Like I knew, like I started to understand like, okay, I'm feeling so much better about myself because I'm changing the way I'm eating in jail. You know, I'm, I'm working out, I'm changing my mindset. I'm changing the way I walked. That if I continue on this path, I'm going to continue to see progress and become that version of myself that I truly want to become. And so I just kept doing that every single day and just focused on the here and now and just said, okay, I can only control today. I'm going to do everything I can, whatever it takes to become the best version of myself today. And then the next day, and the next day, and then you do that enough and you look back and a week's gone by and you're like, wow, I've changed so much. Like I'm able to do, you know, more push-ups. I'm able to, to, to run more. I'm able to you know, deal with cravings in a way where they don't overtake my mind. All these things that add up into beginning to reinvent yourself. And I think if I had future tripped and I had said, okay, like, how am I going to like stay on this path for the rest of my life? Or I'm a failure, so I'm going to fail anyway. So what's the point of even trying? If I'd done any of that, I would have completely counted myself out of the game and I would have automatically lost because there was no guarantee of me succeeding. Yeah, There's no guarantee of success in life. But the people that make it are the people that can go through the, the tunnel of darkness mm-hmm. and continue to walk even though they can't see the light. They just yeah. keep going. And that's what I did. And, and it's, it's a tough, but once you're able to do that, I think once in your life, it builds that adversity muscle so much. Mm-hmm. And then you can handle anything. Then you get through anything. So you make it and not, I mean, we know it's not easy to do what you've done and to overcome all of that. But as you go day by day, moment in moment, did you ever have the cravings uh, to go back to your addictions? And did you ever slip up and then anything. No. No. I mean, no, because I mean, I got lucky, you know, I don't know who says this. I think, I don't know if it was David Goggins or somebody, but it's like, it's easy to do the fitness and the the meditation and all these other things when life is good, Mm -hmm. but it's when life is hard when it really counts. 
because it's about staying consistent during those dark times. And and for me, I learned all these habits mm. like in the depths of hell when I was in jail. Like I learned self-regulation. I learned how to regulate my emotions and working out and, you know, choosing a better option as far as how I deal with things. Like I learned all of that in jail and I was in jail for, for a few months. So my brain, I just think changed a bit. Right. And you're like, I am not going back there. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going back to my past. This is this life that you envision and anybody truly can do that. And it's, it's harder to improve on yourself rather than going back in old patterns. Well, it is. And I think for me, like the one thing that I learned how to do was to turn a lot of the pain into purpose mm -hmm. and not like in a hero's journey way, which I mean, that's one part of it. But when I would work out and when I would run, I would think about all the people that made fun of me. Mm. And I would think about all the people that doubted me. I would think about the version of myself that I hated. And that would drive me to keep going. Yeah. Did you go to any like NA or AA meetings or support groups? No. I mean, it was never really an, an option for me. I mean, yeah. I just, when I got out of jail, my grandparents ended up taking me in and they gave me some some great rules and guidelines. Like, you know, you can live here rent-free. We'll take care of your food. We'll take care of, you know, you, you being able to live here, like all that stuff. But your end of the bargain is, you know, you can't use drugs. You got to tell us when you're coming home. You got to work out. You got to, you know, get a job. You got to do all these things. And that kept me grounded and accountable. And I was also on, on probation where yeah. I had to go show up, pass a drug test, check in. Oh, yeah. That kept me on a, on a straightened path. I mean, and so that was just never in front of me. I just knew that, okay, if I worked out, stayed away from certain people, stayed away from certain things, if I just kept focused, kept the momentum going, that there was a good chance that I was actually going to succeed. Did you ever, or did you or do you do therapy? Yeah, I've done a lot of therapy because it yeah. got to a point where it was like in my, right around my mid-20s, I guess you could say, where I had made this massive transformation. I became very successful as a personal trainer, lost a bunch of weight. and. I still didn't see myself like that. Mm -hmm. I would still look in the mirror and see the old version of me. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea why that was happening. Like people would tell me that I looked like Mark Wahlberg, for instance, and I wouldn't believe it because I still saw the old version of me. And I thought that that was, and I'll, honestly, I thought it was an insult at first because I'm like, is, is he, are they making fun of me? Or it's like, you didn't believe it. Well, because or, I was made fun of my whole, my yeah. whole life growing up. So I assumed that. And then also it got to a point where I thought that happiness and success as a man, like I said at the beginning, was going to be about chasing pretty women and, you know, looking a certain way and having success. And I got all that in my 20s. That's what I like. That was like my goal was like just to get ripped to be able to, you know, um, just prove myself wrong and attract certain people into my life. And then I realized I still wasn't happy. Mm -hmm. So then I go back to therapy, start to unpack like how the divorce and the bullying like really impacted my mental health. And like from a neuropathway standpoint, like why I saw this old version of me still, why I still would get stressed out even when there was nothing to be stressed about, like all these things. And it just came down to homeostasis where my brain was just wired to be stressed. My brain mm -hmm. was wired for external validation and instant gratification still, even though I was doing it in a much healthier way, I had to unlearn some of those unhealthy you know, coping mechanisms and how I viewed external validation and said, okay, like, even though I might be, you know, super into fitness or into, or into health and wellness, that doesn't necessarily like my, doesn't, doesn't encompass my identity and people will still like me, even if I'm not like 5% body fat, Yeah, you know, and I took a lot of internal work to, to really love myself or who I am 
so that these other things like fitness and success, et cetera, mm-hmm. could actually shine in a much more sustainable way. So how do you think you were able to rewire? Was that through talk therapy? Did you do EMDR? Did you... What, how, what's that process? And there's a lot of men who are afraid to talk about yeah. men's mental health. And I think it's so important. And I can even see some of it like being wired for anger or anxiety and not knowing how to live outside of that and holding that in your body. Um, even, you know, my husband grew up in Long Island. They're just... Right. They're, they're <laughs> wired. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're, sometimes I'm like, can you calm your tone down? He's like, that's just how we talk. I'm like, okay. You know, that's not. I think a lot of it came down to self-awareness yeah. and just understanding why I sought out certain things. Yeah. Because once I, I mean, I'm a type A personality and I think mm-hmm. that like once I understand like why something's going on, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm able to fix it. Like it all then made sense. Like, oh, you seek validation from women because you didn't have it growing up, right? Or, you know, and you thought that that would make you happy or, you know, you're getting stressed all the time because you grew up in a, you know, in some turmoil. And so that's going to, you know, teach you that you have to be, you know, stressed in certain situations or, or fill in the blank. And so through talk therapy, I got to begin to understand that and just began to like work on certain things and how I, um, you know, showed up in my life, how I viewed myself. I think sense of self was very important to me where mm-hmm. I had to figure out like what I actually liked about myself, what yeah. I actually loved about myself mm-hmm. and forgiving myself for a lot of the mistakes that I made in the past and understanding that that all made me who I am um, today. Also getting clear on why I was doing certain things. You know, because if my main reason for working out was to get girls, that that's fleeting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I had to like change the way I viewed fitness and that, okay, like I love working out because of what it does for my mindset, my health, my mental health. I mean, look what it did for you when you were in jail. Right. Saved my life. Yeah. And so thinking about that, that's just as you get older and maturing and it's, you know, that's the great thing about talk therapy and really reflecting on yourself and why you do the things. And you can actually change yourself just by being aware. And so now, why do you work out? I mean, now it's just for my mental health. Yeah. And it's just to, I stay committed to myself. Yeah. Because I think the, the big, one of the biggest ways to have your life completely fall apart is to stop following through with the things you tell yourself you're going to do. That's how you lose trust in yourself. You know, and that's how you, I think, um, again, you end up, you lose trust in yourself and then you, then you start sacrificing, falling short in other areas. Like, oh, okay, I'm not going to go to the gym today. That's great. Okay. Well, I'm not going to, maybe I'm not going to like show up for work or I'm going to skip this podcast or whatever. And it just becomes these unhealthy habits that end up ruining you all because you didn't stick to the fundamentals and the foundation of what you know actually works for you on a daily basis. If someone's listening and they want to make a huge change and what would you, a tip to them on patience? Yeah. Talk about how patient you have to be as you're going through that transition out of and dealing with your adversity. So there's so many ways I could take this. I think the biggest thing that helps people is that they, they have to understand if they're making a positive change in their life, whether it's recovering from addiction, whether it's wanting to lose 50 pounds, whether it's going to the gym or whatever the example is, that life's not going to be easy. Life mm-hmm. is still going to be hard. Because I think what happens is when people make this change that's going to better themselves, they commit to that. They think that life is just all of a sudden going to be much better. And the reality is it's still going to to be tough. Mm -hmm. Like when you're recovering from addiction, you still now have to unlearn a lot of these unhealthy patterns 
that have either been caused by the addiction or led to the addiction. You got to deal with a lot of the underlying stress, trauma. You got to rebuild relationships. You got to rebuild trust. You might have to figure out a way to get a job. Like there's so many things that are going to be super tough when you get into recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. And so once you understand that it's going to be challenging and, and it's not going to be easy, then I think it reduces the shame a little bit of when you're making that change and you don't see results right away. You don't feel happy. You don't feel totally happy right away. You understand, okay, this is part of the process. Like I know it's going to be challenging. Same thing with losing weight. Like if you're somebody who hasn't been to the gym in 20 years, well, don't expect to see results and you know, the, the results you want in a week, mm-hmm. right? Understand it's going to be tough. Understand there's going to be days where you don't feel like going to the gym. Understand there's going to be days you want to eat you know, donuts and Pop-Tarts and all these other un- unhealthy things on a regular basis. Understand there's going to be days where you look at yourself in the mirror and you just don't like who you see. Yeah. It's all normal as you're on the journey. And I, yeah, and I think that you can't, you can't future trip and you can't compare your, I mean, it's so cliche, but it's honestly, it's so true. You can't compare your chapter one to somebody else's chapter 20. Like you just can't. Yeah. But I also believe if say you haven't worked out in 20 years and you go to the gym one day or you, you work out, you do yoga, you lift weights at home, whatever it may be. I think you do see results that day mm. because immediately your endorphins, your mind, it already is starting to affect your mental health. So just like thinking of that when someone says, I don't see results after a week, think about how your mind has changed. Yeah. And I think that's really important to point out and to use that as something that keeps you going. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think that that's an awesome point. I think the thing that I've seen a lot is that, especially like a physical transformation, like people want to just all of a sudden like flip a switch and then their life changes in a week. And I think that you have to build the momentum, right? I think going to the gym or taking that walk or whatever, yes, your mindset's going to feel great. But then understanding like, okay, like this isn't going to, I can't just do this once and make it last forever. Yeah. Like I have to stay consistent with this. I have to yeah. keep building the momentum. And there's going to be days where I don't feel like going just because it's just human nature. Yeah. Life's going to happen. We're going to get busy. We're going to get stressed. We're not going to sleep well. Yeah. But I always think like, think about the mind-body connection too. And how if your mind is feeling good, then maybe you're not because you did some sort of workout, even though you are looking down on yourself. But then your mind is feeling good, so you're not going to pick up that donut or that second donut. I mean, have a donut if you want one, but don't eat like 10 of them, okay? (laughs) But uh, I don't know. It's just the motivation to go and do it. It makes you so powerful. Uh, Just the ability to get your one foot in front of the other. I commend anyone who's going through that transformation it's it's hard, whether it's weight or addiction or anything. And I want to go back to, you mentioned if you're a job and you used to have to say that you were a felon yeah. when you were applying for a job as a personal trainer, right? Right, right. And how did that make you feel? Ah, uh, I mean, it was definitely tough. Yeah. But be, I mean, because I was, I went to court, you know, in September, I was in jail, October through December, and then started applying for a job, you know, not too long after that. I kind of had accepted that I was a felon. It was part of my life. Yeah. But it still was tough to be rejected. But at that point, my mindset had shifted so much that I was all about full responsibility and accountability for myself that I didn't fall into the, to the victim trap. I knew that, okay, like I have two choices in this matter. I could not apply for a job mm-hmm. and then go back to jail because I violated my probation. Or I can just do whatever it takes and then keep applying to jobs until somebody takes me. And that's like the mentality is like, and it's, 
it's not easy. It's like you have to be willing to do whatever it takes, especially at the beginning of a transformation or beginning of a journey like that yeah. to find success. And like, for instance, when I got the job as a trainer, I had to check a box and I had to like reveal after like acing this job interview. They were like, yeah. oh my God, I want to hire you. Can you start tomorrow? Right. I'm like, well, there's one thing you must know. And that's I'm a convicted felon and jail saved my life um, when I was in there for felony drug charges. I said, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'll pee in a cup every day. You can talk to my probation officer. I can do, I'll do whatever you want. I was like, just give me the job and I promise I won't let you down. And I think having that kind of mentality mm-hmm. really helps you get your foot in the door and just owning it. Like yeah. owning your, like it's like the eight mile movie with Eminem and he comes out and he like, he's rapping. He's talking about all his stuff, all the skeletons in his closet, drops the mic and walks away. Yeah. I think when you own it like that, people are more, not that they, it's not saying that they won't judge you, but they're more receptive because they're like, oh, this person like owns it. I don't have to, there's no secrets, right? This person yeah. at least being fully transparent and honest. And that I think really served me well because I did that. And then I followed through. Yeah. I didn't look back. That's great. I mean, I can imagine there was some judgment from other people that you had to just let it go. Especially and, when I started sharing my story. Like yeah. I was so worried because, you know, you're in the, you've been in the fitness business for a while. Like, you know, the people who can afford personal trainers mm-hmm. tend to have money, right? And I'm not saying there's a direct correlation with people who have money and judging. I'm not saying that at all. But I was worried about, okay, are these people going to keep paying me this money if I tell them I'm a, I'm a felon? Like, yeah. are they going to be worried about me like robbing them or doing something? You know, it was just all the limiting beliefs I had going on in my mind. And I was mortified to tell some of my clients that were paying me a lot of money mm-hmm. that I had this past. And I remember I was training somebody that became like a second mom to me that I really um, admired. And I knew I had to tell this person my past because I just felt like, okay, I have to get this off my chest. Yeah. And so I said to her, I was like, hey, like, did I ever tell you like how I got into fitness? She's like, no. She's like, what happened? And um, I was like, I was in jail. And I told her my story and she was like, you know, I I really loved you before, but now I really, really love you. Yeah. And that was like a big turning point for me because I was like, man, people don't really care. You know, people, (laughs) they they don't. (laughs) No, and change is possible. And and that was when I started Tone It Up and I would tell my business partner, um, we cannot let anyone know about my past. Mm. Like we are wellness experts. We are fitness queens. Like, you know, uh, no one can know that I did drugs, that my mother had a mental illness, like all of this stigma and shame around it. And so probably for eight years mm, or more, I hid it. Really? Yeah. Wow. And then... I felt like I was being inauthentic to myself. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to write a book. I've got to get it out. I'm going to write a memoir and just get it out. And I started talking about it. I got on the board of directors for NAMI National Alliance of Mental Illness. I was teaching in schools. And I just started coming out and sharing my story. It was actually very healing. Mm. And I was realized no one's judging. Yeah. They, yeah. Like, they respect you more for what you've done and what you've been through and to be able to share that story and that darkness and that overcoming. We've all got demons. Yeah. Everybody's got demons. That's what I've learned. I mean, some bigger than others, obviously, but, and I've also learned like the people that are judging you for something you did in your past are just not meant to be in your life. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. we all, we all make mistakes and I think it's on us to just own that 
and then continue to move forward. And like for me, like when I started to share my story with my clients, that just built a lot of momentum. I was like, oh wow, like people are actually receptive. And that like led me to sharing it on podcasts and local media and with the newspapers and stuff like that. And then, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today had I have not taken that step and just started to to organically, you know, share my story. And I think that like the people that are judging you again, like they're just not meant to be in your life. I know. And I realize that now when some people would freak out like, oh my God, you never told me that. I'm like, I, there's a lot that happened in my life. I can't <laughs> tell you everything. That was, right, right. <laughs> but, you know, I'm like, why would you get upset at me? Because you don't know something and you're, you know, just be a good person. And I wouldn't change a thing in my past. And I'm not sure. It sounds like your past really saved you and you've learned so much. And now you have three books. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would, it's, it's funny. Like I, I definitely wouldn't be who I am today without my past, but I go back and if I'm being a hundred percent honest, um, I probably would, I regret the way I handled things with my mom mm. mm-hmm. because, you know, I had a party when I was 15, when she was in the hospital and trying, again, trying to fit in, trying to be the cool kid. She caught me with weed on my 16th birthday, which back then was, you know, much more, yes, you know, s- significant than it is today. Yeah. And then she kicked me out of her house. And I said some things to my mom that no parent should ever have to hear from their son. Mm. And it put a massive like wedged our relationship to where there was months we didn't see each other. I mean, we were in, in therapy, like, and it took years, years, years to rebuild that relationship. I mean, I'm talking like a decade, close to a decade. Wow. And what it's done for me, what it did to me as far as my ability to connect with in romantic relationships was very negative. Yeah. Because... I would seek out validation again from women because uh-huh. I didn't have that validation from my mom. And I also don't have the same emotional connection with my mom that my brothers have. And that really, I mean, I don't, I'm not like in my room crying about it every day. It still bothers me. Yeah. Um, because I think during those years is when the times where you do build this emotional connection, not when you're 25 years old, right? 26. It's when you're a teenager and when you're like growing up and, I lost that and it's something that I still look back on and I just wish I had done it differently. Is your mom still here? Yeah. And we're yeah. close. The thing yeah. is like on paper, we're close. We're great. I helped her walk, I helped walk her down the aisle, you know, when she got remarried, I, you know, going down to Florida, um, in January to go see her for the, for the holidays. Like we're great. Yeah. But it's emotionally, there's just not just- that same emotional connection. And, and now it doesn't, it doesn't impact me in romantic relationships like it did early on. Cause early on, my 20s, you know, I guess you could say I had mommy issues, right? I'm not mm-hmm. going to, no, I've got nothing to hide here. And so I would just seek out validation from women to fill that void. Where, where now, that's not there. It's more like, I just I just honestly wish I had a deeper emotional connection to my mom. Yeah. You know, and she's not a bad person. So it's not like, you know, I'm not one of these people that, w- that will say like, oh, it's because she was hi- hyper abusive. I walked away. It was like, no, like. I was a jerk. I mean, I mean, I think she could have handled it differently, right? But I think she was doing the best that she could. And so now the collateral damage from that. Yeah. It's like when people look at me now, it's like they're like, man, you're so lucky to have a story like you do. I'm like, really? Like, mm. I mean, as much as I'm, I am very proud of myself and I'm so grateful to be where I am today. But there's been a lot of collateral damage I've had to walk through. Yeah. It's just been not easy, you know? And I say that not because to sound like I'm not trying to be a victim at all. It's more like, 
you know, a lot of this stuff and, and not working on your mental health, not taking care of yourself can have the downstream effects of it mm-hmm. are massive if you're not careful, you know? Yeah. And it's an ongoing project on yourself and to keep, <laughs> yeah. hey, I know. And you have to constantly work on yourself. And talking about the the mother, mommy issues, and I have mommy issues too. My mother passed away in 2021, but I always wanted that that bond with her and thought that I could get there even in the end of the last five years where my husband and I took care of her and it just never happened. Like sometimes, I mean, my mother did have a mental illness, but, and she wasn't able to connect emotionally, but it's just one of those things that different than yours, but I understand like that, that want for a mother, son, mother, daughter connection. Yeah, it's not to say that it'll it'll always be like this. Um, I mean, I do, I do whatever I can to work on that. It's yeah. like there's no anger, there's no hate, like total forgiveness. We've had many of in, you know in depth conversations about childhood and what we could have both done differently. But it's just me. I mean, I, I just like to be as honest and transparent as I can because maybe there's somebody who's listening to this that is maybe like struggling or has struggled with the same thing, and maybe they don't feel so alone, right? I mean, yeah. again, I don't sit at home and this doesn't weigh me down. But, you know, a lot of the, the whole hashtag no regrets thing, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. But I also think there is certain things, especially in my life, I look back, I'm like, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Like, I, would, I wish <laughs> as much as it's, you know, th- those were some stepping stones into what I went through. You know, I still wish I had this deep connection with my mom. Yeah. That you get what you want. <laughs> I will. What would your top two tips be on turning adversity into triumph? Top two tips. Um, I think fitness is so important. Mm-hmm. I think movement, finding a way to get some movement in every single day for in whatever way works for you. Could be walking, could be yoga, could be strength training, could be boot camp, whatever works for you. Because I do think there's there's not many things that fitness gives you. Take all the physical benefits out of it. Like you think about from a adversity standpoint, fitness teaches you to overcome your fears, overcome challenges, mm-hmm. to get stronger every day, mentally and emotionally, teaches you discipline, you know, teaches you how to, um, you know, show up for yourself even when you don't feel like it, all these things. Fitness also gives you community. Mm-hmm. Think about like, you talked about the collective the community there, right? It's like, you go in there, people are in there to better themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you're trying to come out of a time of darkness and, you know, really like elevate yourself, you going into a place like a gym, where there's people that are very forward thinking and forward focused is, is a great way to meet new people and then just kind of raise your vibration, I guess, if you will. So fitness, obviously. Um, the second thing is to just not be afraid to reach out and ask for help. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's, again, one of these cliche things, but you got to you gotta be able to open up and share what you're going, what you're going through. And you know, maybe there's somebody that comes along in your life that unexpectedly helps you in a way that you don't expect could be a friend, could be a family member, could be therapy, because you have to be able to find a way to not feel so alone with some of the problems that you're going through. And I would say that the like a third bonus thing that I often will tell people is to just focus on how far you've come, not how far you have to go. That's something I say often because I think it's easy to get trapped in this mindset of, oh, I don't have the this, I don't have that, I, don't, I want this, but I don't have that. And then you become like super down because you're like, wow, I don't have anything in my life. But really, you have to pay attention 
to what you have achieved and what you do have. Like when I um, was in jail, I, you know, there was times where I was like, man, like I still haven't, like, I don't have a six pack. Like I don't have arm, like the bicep definition, all of these things. And my cellmate would remind me like, dude, like when you started, you couldn't even do a push up from your knees. Like now you can do like 10, like, come on, like, what are you talking about? Right. Mm -hmm. And so celebrating things like that. And then the other thing on the other side of that is playing the long game with all that. And that, that, that things aren't going to happen overnight. Sure. Like we've kind of talked about, you can, you can certainly feel better about yourself in a day by making a change and changing your habits, but it's a journey and you have yeah. to be in it for the long run. And there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. And the hope is that, you know, you just gradually go up the mountain. Sometimes you fall, sometimes you trip, but you just keep going and keep walking up. Yes. Wise words from Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation. And where can everyone find you? Well, thanks again for having me on. I love this. You ask great questions and just feel comfortable, you know, talking to you and kind of cracking me open a little bit. People can find me, you know, I'm at Doug Bopst on the social media platforms. The podcast is The Adversity Advantage, where you can get that wherever you find your podcast, also on YouTube. Um, and DougBopst.com has more information about my story, other interviews I've done. You can buy my books there as well. But, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Thank you. Got it. See you in Austin. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. The Big Silence 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 The Big Silence